0: To Romans chapter 1, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 28 through 32. Romans chapter 1, and verses 28 through 32. Before we get to that specific passage, though, I want to do a brief addendum to last week's lesson, taking into consideration some questions that came up after our study. Was finished, so that's the chart that you have being passed out. I'll explain what that means in just a minute. It should be enough for everybody. If not, if it gets down to the back, take one per family if you want to do that. Just get to where you can see uh, see, uh, your neighbors. Okay, you won't need the chart for just a minute. It'll get to you by the time I get to that. But several passages, several passages in the scriptures condemn homosexuality. In spite of this, there is a growing acceptance of this sinful behavior in many churches, with some going as far as ordaining gays and lesbians into the ministry, and others performing gay and lesbian marriages in violation of the law. One might ask what justification is given by those in a position of church leadership for this acceptance in the light of very clear biblical teaching against it. Last time we discussed the what I, feel I felt like is the fallacious argument that one might have been born genetically with a tendency toward homosexuality, and we had said that even if that was the case, it should be avoided. I don't think that's a strong argument. But the homosexual community's major argument, and I'm talking about, if I can put it this way, the, the theologians in the homosexual community, the major argument that they would put forth against the passages in the scripture that are very clear against homosexuality is what has been called the abuse argument. Justification for the practice of homosexuality is seen in interpreting Paul's condemnation to be against homosexual abuse and not against responsible homosexual behavior. Now, It's true that an abuse argument in many cases is valid. For example, it's true that fornication and adultery are opposed to the norm of sexual relations under the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. You have the norm, which is sex within heterosexual marriage, and then you have the abuse of that norm, which is sex outside of marriage, including homosexual sex. Scripture never approves of any form of sexual love within a homosexual relationship. The polarity that brings the people together was created to function only between men and women. Each homosexual prohibition in and of itself is the abuse. There is no such thing as non-abusive adultery. All adultery is wrong. In the case of homosexuality, motives are not the issue. To make them such finds no exegetical support in Scripture. Homosexuality, according to the Bible, is wrong in and of itself. It is an intrinsic evil. Now look at the chart that you have before you, and I I think hopefully this will be a visual way to understand what I just said verbally. What I'm proposing is that the biblical view is... uh, that sex within a heterosexual marriage, and almost I hate to have to put the heterosexual marriage in there, but as we've prayed tonight, there is a, a gay marriage and lesbian marriage issue that's part of our culture today. But the norm, the biblical norm, is that sex within, sex should take place within a heterosexual marriage. The abuse of that norm, now this is very, very key, the abuse of that norm would be every other form of sexual activity. Now you fill in the blank, I don't particularly care to do it, because we don't need to go down that road, you fill in your own blanks there, but if it's outside of marriage, then it's sinful. That's the abuse, okay? and that's a legitimate use of the abuse argument. Okay. Now that's the biblical view, now what the, what the homosexual view is, and I'm talking about from theologians, this is the discussion, the addendum, is why would some theologians allow the whole idea of homosexual marriages, and even perform them. That's what we're we're discussing in this addendum. The view that they would take is that the norm is homosexual activity in a loving relationship. Now, if, if you watch any kind of news media at all, you've heard this. That's the excuse. We love each other as much as you guys love each other. Why should you deny us the rights that go along with couples that love each other? Now, that's their view of the norm. Their view, then, of the abuse of that norm would be homosexual activity outside of a loving relationship. And they would hold that the passages, particularly here that we're studying in Romans, are talking about that, the abuse of a homosexual relationship. Now, there is no, ex- there is not one iota of, of exegetical evidence for that. But I'm trying to show you where it's coming from. So if you're presented with it, you can intelligently, rationally, unemotionally, discuss it with someone because it does happen to be a big issue like it or not in our culture we can turn the other way we can laugh about it we can you know, make jokes or whatever but it is a huge cultural issue so we need to be prepared that's what they would say is that homosexual activity outside of a loving relationship is an abuse that's what Paul condemns not homosexual activity period that's not the biblical view though but I hope this helps you in, in a small way to see where they're coming from don't agree with them Uh, Not at all, Uh, but that's the argument that they're going uh, to try to make. And you will see this argument made politically as well, that how can you deny two people, two males, two females, who are in a loving relationship the same rights as uh, a male and a female human being in a loving relationship? But I'll tell you, this is where it's starting. It's not where it's going to stop. And if you, if you are well-read on this, you understand that, that those who are backing this, uh, the, the, um, the radical element, if I may, uh, they would want to define marriages as any two loving beings. I don't mean to be grotesque, but it could be a, an older man and a six-year-old girl, if they love each other. It could be a man and his dog, if they love each other this and this, this, they're on record as saying this is not where it stops so when we talk about the Bible's definition and the abuse argument now you know what's being discussed the responsibility of believers is to love and accept those who practice homosexuality but not the, the homosexual behavior any more than we accept the behavior of an adulterer Or a pedophile. It appears. From a careful reading of scripture. That the sin of homosexuality. Has a very destructive effect. On a culture. And as such. God deals severely with cultures. And by cultures. I'm including the, the nation. He deals severely with cultures. That promote and permit. This particular sin. Now all sin is offensive to the holiness of God, it will be part of our subject tonight. All sin is offensive to the holiness of God, but rampant sexual sinning, whether heterosexual or homosexual, destroys the fabric of culture, namely the family, and creates an environment that is not conducive to spiritual growth. So while all sin is offensive to God, some sin carries greater punishment from God. Uh, And we see that example with with murder. Uh, Murder offends the holiness of God in the same way that gossip offends the holiness of God. But thank God, capital punishment is not prescribed for gossip. Because the room would probably be empty except for a couple of you saints out there. (laughs) So the the point is that uh, this is where they're going to come at you with the argument. You need to understand it's not a biblical one. It's a philosophical one. And there is no justification for the abuse argument with regard to homosexuality biblically. Now, if you want to talk about that more, let's do it privately. Uh, And let's take a look at our text tonight. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Before we do that, in, in summary of verses 24 through 27, what we studied last week, we learned that people cannot reject God and come away unscathed. They just can't do it and also that God is active in the process whereby sin's consequences follow sin. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. The scripture is clear on that. But three times in this section of scripture alone, Paul's argument in the text says, God gave them over, or God turned them over, like a judge handing a condemned prisoner over for the punishment of his crime. In the case of the sinner... In Romans 1, to through 27, the punishment is included in the sin itself. This was toward the end last time, and I know we were having a kind of hurry to get through. I didn't want you to miss that. In an act of divine irony, the sin is part of the punishment. The very thing that people think is going to bring them happiness is actually, in in an act of irony on God's part, that which makes them most unhappy. The more they sin, the worse it gets. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, read along with me. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, that's the third time, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. "...being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful." Verse 32, "...and although they know the ordinance or the law of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Remember now, as we close out chapter 1, that Paul is making his case in this first major section of the body of the letter of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's making a case that all are under sin. And the first group he deals with is the immoral person. And that that is... One that will thankfully conclude tonight. Sometimes you get all this list of sin and, and focus on that so so much, it, it, it gets burdensome. But there are very few that would disagree that the immoral person needs a savior. Even someone who's not a believer tends to agree with that. They would, um, that's why they make comments like, when you ask them, what, are you going to heaven? They would say, well, I'm just trying to be good enough. Very few. Now, there are a few. But very few people say, well, I'm just, I'm trying to be as bad as I can so I don't go. You know, they don't say stuff like that. And innately, they know that, that the bad person doesn't get to go. So Paul starts off with the easiest part of his argument. Nobody in their right mind is going to say, yeah, murderers, uh, people who are wicked, people who are greedy, evil, you know, people who uh, spread strife. All those people, they deserve to go to heaven. So that's what he's doing in this first section. He has begun with the immoral man. And so I hope that you have no problem with Paul's argument this far. Most of humanity agrees that immoral people fall short of God's righteous standard and will not see the light of heaven. So that's what Paul is finishing up, or will finish up in, study, in the study of Paul's lesson tonight. So in verse 28, verse 28, is, um, verse 28 is a statement of principle. Verse 32 is a statement of principle. In verses 29 through 31, we have a listing of Sins. Verse 28 is fairly difficult to translate and so that's why if you check different translations you'll have uh, quite a few different variances on what the English text will say. And when you have parallel translations and you see uh, variances in the particular verse, you know that it was difficult Greek and that's why it it comes down that way. The New American Standard, which is the one I'll take off of, uh, says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, Remember, these are people that had the knowledge of God, they understood God through creation, and they suppressed that knowledge in unrighteousness. This is the same group of people that Paul is speaking of. The way that it could be translated, and I don't propose this in terms of its final translation, but I'm going to give you this, which because it's it's a fairly stilted translation from the Greek, a fairly literal translation. Sometimes literal translations aren't the best, but I want to give you this so you can kind of see um, what Paul's doing here, he's having a little bit of fun in the process, although it's not, it's not laughing kind of fun, he's, but he's, he's doing something with a word play in here in the Greek language. In the Greek language, in a, in a very stilted way, it says, And just as they did not approve to have God in knowledge, God gave them over to an un- unapproved mind to do the things that ought not to be done. That's the, the word play that doesn't show up in English is that word approved. Uh, in, um, in the New American Standard, it just translates it, they didn't see fit. But in the Greek language, it uses a word that means approved. So the, the irony that Paul's is using is they didn't approve to have God, so God gives them, turns them over to an unapproved mind. Even though it's translated in different, word, in different words in the New American Standard, one, one way it's translated, to see fit to acknowledge, and the other one was a, a depraved mind. But the actual Greek says an unapproved mind. So Paul is saying again that you don't go up against God and come away unscathed. It's not like you can catch him looking the other way. You can't fake him out. You do this, he's gonna. He's, it's right back at you, buddy. That's what he's doing. And a lot of times he'll use the very activity that you're in as part of the punishment. The sin is part of the punishment. The bottom line here is though they refuse to have God in their knowledge. In the Greek text also the word God is in the emphatic position and so it could uh, uh, it could be understood and just as they did not approve God they were rejecting god it literally says to approve to have to approve god to have in knowledge but the point is they refused it's an act of their will uh, they can't blame it on being born that way everybody is personally responsible and again note what's happened here they didn't approve god or they didn't approve to have the knowledge of god so god gave them over to an unapproved mind the second part of this verse to do those things which are not proper. What Paul means by this particular undefined Greek term—it's not specific. He'll he give us a listing of them in a moment, but is that? I'm going to quote the theological dictionary of the New Testament here because I think they do as good a job as anybody in helping us to understand what this means. He said, "What Paul means by this undefined me kathenoto is that what is is that which is offensive to man, even according to popular moral sense of the Gentiles." i.e. what even natural human judgments regards as vicious and wrong. In accordance with the decision which they have made against the Creator, God finally abandons them to blunted sensibility. Religious indifference is followed by moral indifference. Perverted by a wrong basic attitude, the Gentile is possessed by destructive passions and overthrown by all kinds of vices. He thus loses all vestiges of the humanity which even the healthy pagan respects. Did you catch that? The list of sins that Paul is about to give us is offensive even to the pagan Roman or even to the pagan Greek. And I don't realize, I don't know if you realize it, but that's going pretty low. I mean, we talk about the nobility of the Romans and how they were are people who had integrity and strength and a strong military and all that. They were some of the most immoral people on the planet. I mean, don't ever fool yourself. They were very, very civilized, but in many ways they were very cruel. And and if you want to talk about immorality, then go over to the Greek culture. It was one of the most immoral cultures that has ever been known to man. Most of you have heard of the city of Sparta. You know, in, in Greece there were two primary cities. One was Athens, and another was Sparta. The Spartans were the, that's where we get the term Spartan from. They were very military people. They were very orderly people. But the Spartans had a a ritual, a rite of passage for young males. When When a male became approximately 14 to 15 years old, his family would place him in the street. And they would pick an older man, or one who was older than him, somebody perhaps in the late 20s, to maybe early 50s, they would have a ritual chase throughout the street with the whole town following behind where the older man would chase the younger man. And then eventually, the, the older man would catch the younger man outside the city, would take him up to his cabin, and they would spend a month there while the older man introduced the younger man in Sparta to sax. The, 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 the The average Spartans first... Exposure to sex was was this perversion. So when Paul says, when he uses this term, that the things that I'm going to mention to you, even people like those in Sparta know that it's wrong. You know, sometimes we complain that that society sets the standards. You know, society sets what's morally right and morally wrong. That's garbage. God sets what's morally right and morally wrong. That's why it's it's. Um, incongruous for an atheist to start talking about morality. Morality based upon what? So Paul is saying here that um, this behavior is offensive even to the popular moral sense of the Gentiles. And it means everybody understands that this is bad. So, and just as they did not approve to have God in knowledge, God gave them over to an unapproved mind to do the things that ought not to be done. That's the best way I can translate that. These are just things that ought not to be done. These are things that offend even immoral people. Now, in verses 29 through 31, we have a list. And this list is... Indicative of people who have been given over to an unapproved mind or a depraved mind. Part of that phrase also includes the conscience, but there's there's too much to go over in the short time that we have tonight to, to make that connection. But just understand that that word mind also includes aspects of our conscience. People who have refused to acknowledge God end up with minds that are disqualified from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. That's an, important, um, that's an important idea that Paul is bringing out, particularly with regard to the modern Calvinistic notion of total depravity. So, people, Paul, Paul is saying, people who have refused to acknowledge God end up with minds that are disqualified from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says they can understand, at least the limited revelation that they've got. Now when we get to the end, because of the decisions they've made before, they're having a difficult time with any kind of morality. I know because I've heard the prayer request, and and I know certain situations that come up from time to time, most of us are aware of, people who have had chance after chance after chance and the more chances they get the more like the pharaoh of the exodus they seem and the more they say no the easier it becomes to say no that's what paul's talking about here once one says no too many times then it's almost impossible for them to say yes and pharaoh is the classic biblical example of this. It's true that Romans tells us, and we'll learn it, we'll study it later in, in a lot of depth, uh, that God was responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart. He had, he had the right to do that. But when we look at the text in Genesis, you'll see that Pharaoh made the decision first, and then God continued on. So this is a, a preview of what'll come up in Romans chapter 9. So these people are doing things that are not proper. As in chapter 1 verse 21, Paul stresses that people who have turned from God are fundamentally unable to think and decide correctly about God and his will. That's why it is totally a waste of time to try to clean up the life of an unbeliever and to try to get them to act morally. It doesn't save them and they're just not on the same page with you. The only thing you need to be talking to them about, once you get to the, to the issue that God exists, and sometimes you have different types of evangelism that are taking place, is what the, the ultimate solution to their problems are. Don't confuse them. Uh, it's, it's real tempting to, to try to clean up whatever behavior that we think is offensive in their life while we're giving them the gospel, especially if it's a friend or family, spouse. You, want to, you, know, you need to accept Jesus Christ, and you need to quit being mean to me. No, you need to accept Jesus Christ. Leave the quit being mean, mean to me out. He'll understand that. I know it's us. He'll understand that later. But that's not part of the gospel. Now for the, the list of sins. I'm not going to, to go over each one of them specifically. Some of them, I believe, are self-evident but, self-evident. but in these verses, we find one of the more exhaustive lists of sins in the entire Bible. It is, it's the first one, and the, the headliner of it, is being filled with all unrighteousness. Really, the rest of them flow down from that. Much like in, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then the rest of them flow out from that. In this, what their main problem is, they're filled up. They're being filled up with unrighteousness. You know in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a very similar construction to what we see here. Rather than being empowered with the Holy Spirit, the, some people are being empowered by wine. Well, these people are being filled up with unrighteousness. And I think New American, New International Version translates that wickedness. But that, uh, what unrighteousness means in this passage is that which is contrary to what is right or just. So it's just a basic category. You're either on the right side of morality or you're on the wrong side. A lot of us would like to have our feet in both sides. Well, if you've got one foot in there, then you're out of fellowship. That's all I can tell you. You can't tiptoe around and think that you can play a game over here and, and have this part of your life being real righteous, but you've got this part over here that nobody knows about. I hope. you know. And, and we're going to kind of play in the tulips over here while all the time having our church behavior to where everybody thinks we're righteous. So God knows that you got your toes over there, whatever that over there is. So cut it out. That's the answer. Not to try to tiptoe a little more gingerly. Unrighteousness is that which is contrary to what is right or just. So that's a general category. Wickedness, evil in the NIV, is what is vile and sinister. Greed is the drive to always obtain more and more and more and more, whether you need it or not. Malice, or depravity in the NIV, describes resident moral evil. Insolent focuses on activities. Arrogant focuses on thoughts. And boastful focuses on words. Uh, The rest of these characteristics, I I believe, are self-evident, and and I'm not going to take the time to explain them. I think you know what it means to be uh, disobedient to parent, or, uh, or to be a slanderer, or to be a hater of God. Paul doesn't give these folks the luxury of being neutral when it comes to God. According to God, the atheist hates. According to Paul, the Holy Spirit teaching through Paul, the atheist hates God. That's not a very flattering picture. At least once he gets down that road, why would he? It's, it's because the idea that God exists is convicting to them. I believe as Aldous Huxley said, the reason I'm an atheist is because it frees me to my erotic pleasures, to my hedonistic or hedonistic pleasures. He wanted to be able to do whatever he wanted to be able to do. And if there was a God, he couldn't do it. So he eliminated the idea of God because his hedonistic pleasures were more important to him. The point here here is that there may be an immoral person. Remember, this is who Paul's speaking about now. There may be an immoral person in the crowd that gets hung up on the sexual sins that have been mentioned before this in this passage... And begin to think that perhaps they're not in the same category. You know what I mean? I mean the gossiper that is immoral because he or she is the gossiper, the slanderer, the one who's disobedient to their parents. May start looking at the one who's homosexual or the adulterer or the you know the the sexual pervert and say, Oh, I, I, I agree, they're immoral and they need a savior while not realizing that the sins they're committing are just as evil before God, although they may incur different punishment, to be sure. But unholiness is unholiness. And so Paul includes things like being a slander, being a gossip, right alongside with murder. Now that is not very nice, because we'd like to consider the murderer as a, and the adulterer and the homosexual in a different category, with the you know, the real kind of neat more neat, tidy, respectable sins like arrogance and being boastful and gossip and greed and envy, and, you know slander. But they are in the same category. To be blunt, Paul is saying that a person who is disobedient to parents is in the same boat with regard to need as the homosexual or the adulterer or the murderer. There are degrees of punishment that God passes out for different sins, but all sin is offensive to God. The gossiper is just as guilty before God as the one who is practicing homosexuality. Remember, in the flow of Paul's argument, he's going to end up by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're in the easy part now, the immoralist. It's a little more difficult when we get to the moral person, but Paul's going to say, even you, moral person, you... You need a Savior too because you're not quite as moral as you think you are. Now what I've drawn on the board is a circle that that encompasses all of these sins. And what I want to do is give you a visual picture of what Paul is saying in words. He's saying that unrighteousness is the the sin out of which all of these flow. Unrighteousness is a basic right and wrong. None of the things in here are right. But what I wanted to show you was they're all inside this condemnation. So the person who's boastful is sitting right inside this condemnation with the person who's a murderer. The person who's disobedient to parents, and this is, these are people that are unbelievers in this category, but that is just as immoral and sinful as one who's a hater of God. Do you see what I'm, see what's going on here? You can't ex- this is what the world loves to do. Are you going to heaven? Well, I'm just trying to be good enough. Or are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect. But I've never killed anybody. I've never stolen anything from anybody. I've been faithful to my wife for 45 years now. And what Paul is saying is, ain't good enough. That's why we have this rather exhaustive list of sins. By the way, there is a, there's a list of sins called, that a lot of people talk about, the seven worst sins over in Proverbs. That's nowhere close to the most exhaustive list of sins in the scriptures. This, this is far more encompassing than that. So sometimes we have a tendency to look at those seven worst sins and say, well, I don't really do too many of them. And we think, well, maybe I'm in good standing before God. Hey, listen, as an unbeliever, any sin, any sin demonstrates that you've been, been born sinful. Paul's going to get to that in Romans 5. But even as a believer... You need to watch this, because the same principle could transfer to our offending the holiness of God after salvation. You know, Someone who murders, we'd all agree David was sinful when he did that, right? But if we become boastful, we lose our fellowship with God in the same way that we would if we had murdered someone. I'm not putting the two on a par when it comes to punishment or severity or, or danger to society. And not at all. But I want us to understand that how holy and how perfect God is. Sometimes we try to recreate God in our image. We were created in his image. And then we turn around and return the favor by recreating him in our image. And he doesn't appreciate that. Because that's offensive to him. God is perfectly holy. And what he demands, even of, of us after salvation, he, he demands no sin. It's not like he excuses this one little sinful pattern. You can get along about your business. Now, God doesn't promise perfection this side of heaven. It's something. It's a burden we'll have to bear the entire time. But we can't start excusing things. Yeah, and you know, I know I got this real problem with pride and arrogance and boastfulness and gossiping and slander. But at least I'm not a murderer. <laughs> That's kind of hollow. It doesn't it doesn't get you real real far. So the reason this is on the board is I want you to see they're all connected when it comes to condemnation. The immoral man or woman, needs a Savior because all of these sins are offensive to the holiness of God. Now while the list is one of the more exhaustive, the list is not exhaustive. There are sins that aren't on that list. So don't think if you got through this list too, I doubt anybody did, or anybody that's an immoralist here would get through it, but if you did, uh, there are other sins as well. Now in verse 32, and although they know the ordinance or the law of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The function of this concluding verse is to bring about even more fully the willful rebellion against God that pervades humanity. Paul notes that those who engage in the activities he has listed know what they're doing is wrong. You ever have one of your kids say, "Well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know, Daddy. You know, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that." Sometimes, maybe, but most of the time, as a parent, you know, good and well, they knew not to do that. I didn't know I was supposed to. You know, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to take that. Well, then, why were you hiding it from me? Why were you hiding the fact that you stole that cookie from me? No, they knew. But that's um, that argument doesn't work in a court of law. And it doesn't work with parents, and it doesn't work with God. So they know that the activities that they are engaged in are wrong. Paul, Paul's going to bring this out again in, in chapter 2, verse 15, and since we're close, you might take a look at that. or Actually, look at verse 14 first. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. Their conscious bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Deep down, they know. And one of the most practical applications I can give you tonight is when you're witnessing to someone, when you're giving a testimony for Jesus Christ and telling them about him and how to get to heaven, and they look you square in the eye, as, as I've had people do to me, and, and say, I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Deep down, deep down, they know they're not. They know that the things that they're doing are wrong, and that's something that can be used to your advantage. It's not that we're trying to, to be one of the, soul, like the sophists in Greek and, and win an argument just simply for the sake of winning an argument. That's not the point. I mean, lives are at stake here. You know, if we talk about physical lives being at stake and the, the links that we'll go to to save a physical life, well, what about someone's eternal destiny? They know that they're not good enough. And that can be used. Don't let them get away with that. And I think it needs to be done gently, but don't let them get away with that. Something that ought to shock the town gossip is that they also know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, even if they suppress that. God says... At at the very least, we have to take from this passage, God says everything on that list is worthy of death. Now thankfully, once again, that word there is not talking about physical death. A couple of things on there are worthy of physical death, at the very least, the murder and the haters of God, which we would have to assume is blasphemy. Under the Mosaic Law, they prescribe death for those two things. But gossiping and slandering and, and being a greedy are typically not things that we would prescribe capital punishment for. So what is what is the worthy of death meaning here? We might say, yeah, the murder is, but the gossiper, well, yeah, Paul says. So it can't be physical death, the Old Testament doesn't prescribe capital punishment for that many things, that make more than we do, but not for that many. So the type in, of death in view here is spiritual death which is a separation from God. Death generally is viewed biblically as separation. Physical death is the separation of the body and the soul and the spirit. Uh, spiritual death is a separation of that person from God in terms of a of a right relationship and and etc et sexual death is is a separation whereby the body can't perform the function that it was designed to to perform. We see that in Abraham's case. But death is generally a separation. It doesn't mean an annihilation. It's a separation. So just just because someone dies physically doesn't mean they're annihilated, their soul's annihilated. They still go on living. It's just that they're separated from God and that's the part of the punishment. So they understand and if they don't, God's making it clear to them here. But they don't only do these things. But to make matters worse, these type of the immoralist Encourages other people to do them too, and we may wonder why would you do that. Well, it's the well, uh, well-known adage, "Misery loves company." If I'm going to do something wrong, and I can get two or three of you to do it with me, my conscience gets soothed just a little bit because I'm not out there all by myself, where my conscience can, where my conscience can speak to me, where the Holy Spirit, at least from a believer standpoint. can can speak to me saying, you know that's wrong, you know that's wrong, you know that's wrong, because he can be drowned out by the other two people that are with me talking too. You see? Misery loves company. Evil companions corrupt good morals. And so these folks not only do these sins, but they give hearty approval to those who do them as well. And they recruit others to do it as well. In summary of of this portion, verses 18 through 32, though man could know God, they refused to know him and turned to idolatry. This leads to immorality, uh, immorality, and one might ask why. And it's because man never seeks an idol higher than his own morals. Man never seeks an idol that is higher than his own morals. That's why the Greek gods were never big enough for Plato. They weren't perfect. They weren't transcendent. And you know what? The Greek gods tended to cavort around whenever they got a chance because that's what the Greek people liked to do. So if their gods did it, it couldn't be that bad. And finally, this leads to hatred of God. So we see now in this first major portion of the body of Romans the condemnation of the immoral man before God. In the weeks to come, we'll take a look at the condemnation of the moral man, and then finally, the condemnation of the Jew. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this section of Scripture. We thank you for the revelation it's given us. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn even as believers, although this is speaking specifically of the non-Christian, but we thank you for the revelation of what your attitudes are toward any sin. And Heavenly Father, I do pray that one of the applications we all might make is a bolder heart for giving the gospel and and may the holy spirit remove any fear that we might have in our lives from just in a calm way in a loving way talking with those about Jesus Christ that that are family and our friends that may not that may not know him in in the way that they should So, Father, give us boldness, and we pray that you would dismiss us with the the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.